Welcome. This is season three of The Daily Marketer, where we've decided to do something a little special. Earlier this year, startup junkie and marketplace master Ty Wolf Jones, hey Ty, approached me and pitched us the idea of instead of interviewing founders and marketers, why don't we dive into the world of marketplaces, the VH1 behind the music of marketplaces, or what is the making of the sausage of a marketplace? Ty could bring the operations point of view, and I could bring the marketing point of view, and we could make some marketplace magic, or maybe a little more like marketplace mayhem. So join us for the series where we've spoken to over a dozen marketplace leaders and pioneers from Uber, Convoy, Bellhop, DoorDash, Rover, but also some rising stars and marketplaces from multiple countries, venture capitalists, and more. You're not going to want to miss an episode. From what we can see, most marketplaces suffer from a supply issue. I think you've seen that many times. I've seen that a couple of times as well. Was DoorDash supply constrained yeah, in the sense I mean, yeah. of drivers and or restaurants? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, again, on the restaurant side, it's one of those kind of never ending stories, right? Where, I mean, we've all run into it where I've always, I've gone on and tried to find that one restaurant that I really wish delivered tonight. Like I never really thought about it before, but I wish tonight it delivered. And you go on there and you're like, oh, it's not here or oh, it's closed or whatever, right? And so that is definitely, in my mind, a supply constraint, right? And so, um, and then what do you do? You might check another app, right? You might check, you might finally check their website um, and go to a couple of different places. And this is where you start to realize like, there's not a lot of, at that point, at that moment of choice, you know, we're willing to kind of go with whatever app, you know, can, can get it to us whatever app can get it to us the cheapest, you know, those types of things. But um, so I think that's always a supply constraint. But the other big factor, right, in making a decision in these things is, especially for delivery, food delivery, is how long will it take for it to get to me, right? Like, if you start going through and you find that one great place and you're like, hey, and you're talking to your partner and you're like, we're going to get this tonight. Great. Good. You go through the order and then suddenly it says 72 minutes, delivery you're like oh hold on it's not going to be here for like an hour and half an hour and a half right like suddenly you kill that whole transaction you abandon that car you bail out and you go and find something else that is almost always a problem of not enough drivers on the road at that moment Mm. right and so at least that's one of the ways to, to try to solve that. Now, there, there could be other factors like, oh, you you built your radiuses, you, you went out a little too far. You're being a little too ambitious with what you're willing to deliver as a company or as a restaurant, et cetera. Or it could just be, you know, traffic time, right? Like it could be six o'clock um, in Redmond, you know, Washington, where it just gets busy because everybody's coming home from work, right? So there, there could be a number of factors, but the main one that you can control or try to do something about is put enough drivers on the road so that somebody is a little bit closer and can get there sooner. When you have that, you know, kind of dialed in, you can hit those reasonable delivery times, those reasonable ETAs, and you're always trying to to try to balance that out, right? So yes, I would argue, yeah, there's always a little bit of a supply constraint once people understand the apps out there and start hitting that app every night. So. There was always a little bit, or were there moments where it was a major problem and it could oh, jeopardize yeah. the company? I don't know, jeopardize the company, but there's, you know, because too much demand feels like a solvable problem, right? This is the thing in ops, right? That guy kind of argue like 
yes, a lot of times we are the executors, we are the reactors to what's happening, but at least there's something to react to. So it's not as dire a lot of times as it seems, as long as the demand is there. I think if you've hit that point where the demand is there, these are solvable problems. And that is, you know, great, great ops people, great supply side folks kind of think that way of like, how do we make this happen? How do we get this done? And and that, that's what, you know, these companies that we're talking about, these are some of the best executors in the world. And that's why. Because the demand was there, they're figuring out how to solve this problem on a day-to-day basis. But yeah, there were definitely nights, you know, where, you know, you didn't have enough drivers on, it blew up for whatever reason, and or it blew up at a different time than you thought it would, because you didn't have factor all that in correctly. And the next thing you know, that half hour, that hour, the end of the night is shot. And maybe that's when you jump in the car and start delivering yourself. Not that, you know, a lot yeah. of times one driver could solve the night or save the night, but you do, you definitely would be like, oh crap, there's three deliveries and I've only got, you know, X number of people on right now. It's going to go into hour and a half delivery times. I'm jumping in the car. I'm going to take these a couple of these. Dang, that's dedication. <laughs> Happens so, all the time. How many deliveries did you do? Hundreds? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. I was an Uber Eats driver for about nice. one year and I got something like 400, 500 deliveries. Nice. Yeah. Nice. It's a I skill. I didn't do that many at the end of the day, but it definitely there were days and nights where you're like out the whole time. You know, you're, you're also trying to be there for the rest of the things. You know, in the early days, we ran pretty lean. So <laughs> a lot of times, you know, you had to work with your other GMs or your AGM um, to, try to, to try to make things happen. But yeah. How did DoorDash generate demand? You know, arguably in, in the food delivery space, it's about awareness first and then about trust. Um, and so, you know, when we launched a market, we love to drop mailers into people's houses, actually get something physical in their house. And then then once people were aware of it and either called the phone number or, or hit the app or hit the website, the other great thing I think that they did that was pretty amazing is they had their, they built their own support tools and their own support teams. And they literally had people who answered the phone on the other side um, and, and took care of everything for the customers on, on the other side. And I think that in and of itself, a lot of times made, you know, built that trust, especially in those early days, whether it be Retention. online, through email. Yeah, those types of things. But definitely in the early days, it was literally just getting people to know what DoorDash was, right? It was that awareness campaigns, a lot of things in people's homes. There was obviously online advertising as well. If you were searching delivery um, those years, you DoorDash definitely popped up. But, you know, when I joined DoorDash, it was not the most well-known delivery app out there by any way, shape, or form, right? It was still one of the the lesser known, at least up here. I think in certain areas, Palo Alto, the Bay Area, they were huge um, when I joined, but not in Seattle. In Seattle, we were number seven or eight, you know, that were up here. In fact, that's why we ended up launching in not in Seattle proper, but on the east side into some of these areas that didn't have um, these other competitors um, to, to build our name and build our reputation. And competitors were? Bite Squad was actually a big one back then here in Seattle. That was... Uh, uh, they had the green cars these days, but they had they had their own cars. Yeah, they they did those things. Um, Aviar, Postmates, 
and then there was a couple of local companies uh, that were here. And then Uber Eats had launched just before in Seattle, just before we launched um, DoorDash as well. But it was their first version of, of Uber Eats. It was, um, you know, you, you basically like a lunchtime delivery service of a uh, just a couple of choices. So, so pretty competitive landscape. Yeah, definitely. So how would you make, so if you're supply constrained, you might be a little bit, you might be a lot, depends on the time, depends on the scale. How do you make DoorDash valuable or interesting to a driver that has the option of five plus different companies? Yeah, that's a that's a good one. I, I would say that, you know, in the delivery space, drivers were always in a state of kind of frustration, right? These delivery companies were never perfect. Um, and so you had an opportunity there all the time. But one of the things that we really tried to do, so we had a little local office, right, where drivers had to come by once they got onboarded, once they went through an online training, and then they could get their supplies. In the early days, we actually didn't have an online training, actually ran orientations in the office. So that was a big part of it, like being able to have that local presence have them come in, come in the shop, get to know us. It was me and like a contractor or two before my assistant GM started. And we literally taught all the courses through a video on a TV, you know, met everybody, gave them their supplies and their t-shirts and all these types of things. So there definitely was this idea in the early days, especially of building a relationship, knowing these folks and having them be able to come out. Um, but, you know, I still like the idea that we, we offered a lot of choice in those early days. It, it was a bit controversial, you know, in, in, in some of the, the ways that we did it, but we offered a lot of choice, both in our partners um, and even those restaurants that weren't partnered with us initially. And, you know, that kind of gave a lot, even the drivers understood that when I have more choices, the, the customer has more choices, there's going to be more deliveries. The other thing for us that was actually the easiest thing was we were delivering on the east side. So, in those you, early you days, were delivering. Yeah, we were delivering on the east side. We weren't delivering in Seattle. And interestingly enough, a huge number of drivers didn't live in Seattle, didn't like coming to Seattle, didn't like driving in Seattle. So mm. it was pretty easy to kind of promote. We're not delivering in Seattle right now, and that like got our a big influx of of, of demand, regardless of what they had done before, whether it was deliver pizza or deliver, you know. Uh, just you know, legal documents. Like we had people who did a little bit of everything. They just wanted to deliver in Bellevue or, or Redmond or Kirkland. Um, they wanted to be on the east side because they hated driving in Seattle. So that was one of the easiest ways. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So what was the value prop that resonated with these DoorDash drivers or people that ended up being, say, very committed DoorDash drivers? Yeah. I mean, a few of these guys, I just got to know, you know, like we just, I knew them all the time. I was online all the time. So I'm texting them, um, sometimes calling them. And there was definitely, you know, my first 50, hundred drivers, they knew me, you know, in essence, they had my, my text line, not my, not my cell phone, but my text line. And they were, you know, we were calling and talking and chatting, you know, all evening long, even when it was slow. So obviously in the early days, we were still trying to balance out demand and supply. There were definitely times or nights that weren't as busy as we thought they'd be. And I'd have drivers, you know, sitting at home or near home or out somewhere and they'd be like, you know, they text in, hey man, what's going on tonight? You know, and it was just, you start having those conversations and getting to know a lot of these guys. So 
you definitely do build up, even though eventually it's thousands of drivers, it doesn't start out that way, right? So you definitely have a relationship with those early guys. So early relationship with the hundreds of drivers, but then it starts scaling. So so let's talk a little bit more about scaling now. And let's let's use a different company, that being Wrench, because you were able to scale Wrench to become a, a nationwide provider. I, I don't want to give away what it is. So let's just start with what is Wrench? Yeah. Wrench is a, a mobile mechanic company. The, the mechanics actually come to you. You work in your driveway or, or you're at your workplace or wherever you want, and, and the mechanics come to you. Um, so it was not roadside assistance. It was to not your... roadside assistance. Okay. Um, no, exactly. Good, good differentiation there. This was definitely like general maintenance, important stuff that happens on your car, brakes. Um, they could do a little bit of everything. Now, they obviously didn't do those jobs most of the time, and, and maybe they do today, but at the time where they you know take multiple days or or things like that, big overhauls or or anything like that. But um they could do ninety percent of anything you need on your car, you know, in your driveway or at your workplace in the parking lot while you're at work. Um uh, it was it was uh Another one of those super easy ideas. People wanted it all over the place um, and still do. And it was a, a great service to provide. So services like oil change, changing brakes, changing sure. tire? No, it wasn't a tire, not tires. We had a partner that did tires eventually. Okay. Uh, but it, it's more about maintenance and auto repair. Tires, you need you know, air generation, you need air, basically, a generator to, to, to air up the tires. And that's hard to do mobily a little bit. You know, like I said, I did it growing up, um, but we had huge service trucks and I was mainly out on farm tires. So. Okay. And, and you were an early member of Wrench. So where did the company start in terms of scale? I'm, I think it was just the Seattle market. And then where did you all take it? Yeah. So yeah, started in Seattle market, expanded out to one more city, Phoenix, Arizona, right after I started. And then we kind of came up with a launch playbook after that and a launch model and and took it, you know, basically to 20 different markets at that point. And I think today they're at many more markets than that. So they're they're doing auto repair and 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 auto inspection in um, lots of markets. I don't actually know the number anymore, but yeah, all over the country. That's pretty impressive. Okay. So you mentioned this launch model. How did you all come to this launch model? How did you know that this proof of concept could be something that could be replicated? Yeah, it it was tricky. You know, you never know if it can be replicated in those early days. You're trying to figure out how to do it right. Right. And, you know, one of the things that this is that supply and demand where you realize you really got to get everything right. So we kind of, um, for lack of a better term, like, manufactured, you know, kind of ginned up our own demand for that very first day. What I mean by that is at Wrench, we actually hired all of our mechanics. And so they were employees. So it was a little different model than the dual contractor ones from Uber or DoorDash. And that was mainly because these are, you know, highly skilled workers that, that, and, and, and more complex jobs where we needed that stable base to be able to do things right. But when you go to launch a market, the demand might be there, but again, auto repair is one of those things that you always have to do, right? So you got to kind of catch people at the right time. So we had to do a lot of 
kind of leg work in the beginning side, beginning of the of the company to get that demand up. So it definitely started once we found a market that we wanted to go into, identified a market that we wanted to go into, and then found a, a, a few mechanics in that area that were stellar that we could build a business around. We would hire those guys, and then we would go to that market and start to generate that buzz um, you know, get those referrals, go out and tap all the networks that the company had and, and, and generate that business. And the idea here was we had to line up launch day with that really solid start of business, right? So mm-hmm. um, whether they were oil changes, which were a little easier to capture in the early days or break jobs or, you know, those things that, you know, we, you may have been putting off for a while, weren't super needed, but you were just waiting on a good deal. We tried to offer deals. We tried to offer promos um, and we would line up those several jobs for those first couple of days. And that's when, and then we would go in and we would train our hire mechanics, get them onboarded, train them up. Meaning, what do we train them on? Obviously, they were all experienced mechanics, but we had an app that they ran their business off of. You had to get parts, right? Every job has a bit of logistics in it because you have to get parts. So we had to set up our parts suppliers in that town. And then, of course, you know, teach everybody how the system kind of works so that it's hyper efficient and 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 we get everything going. So you do all of that leading up to launch day and then boom those jobs happen. Ideally, you know, if we did it right, we got a little bit of a bang for our buck with some press or some some uh some promotion that went out there um and 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 we've launched launched a new market by doing that. Excellent. All right. And I like the word you use gin up demand. How would you gin up demand? Well, some of it, you know, was a little bit of the secret sauce of the, you know, online marketing and, and those kinds of things that they had. But there was definitely like once you've built up some business, right? You know, obviously one of the best ways to get more business is referrals. And so we really started, we would use the networks that the company kind of had easy access to, uh, get out there and do and do uh do uh some signups and some promos for those folks that may be referred in. And that was absolutely the best because these were typically folks who knew us through a friend or, or family, um, through somewhere else. And we were able to work with and really be out there. Um, a lot of times we were out there, myself or, or my, you know, my launcher, my director of ops, she would go out and actually like be on site with the mechanic, with the customer um, in, in those first days to, to build, again, those relationships, right? So. And were there often repeat customers as in they would need something maybe every few months or was it kind of a, like a one and done pattern that you all started to see in customers? Well, obviously the name of the game is repeat business, right? And with car maintenance, you you never, you don't want the big stuff to happen all the time, but you've got to, you've got to maintain your car, right? So there's definitely stuff every few months to six months that you have to do on a car um, and, and obviously the, the bigger stuff, even if it's not the biggest stuff, like breaks and things like that, you've got to do every, every, you know, couple of years or so, or, you know, uh, and so you're, you're ideally trying to build in this concept. And that was one of the big benefits of the wrench app and the wrench online presence, um, online relationship building was this idea of like, once you were a member at wrench, you, you got plugged into all of those things you knew you would need. And we got more sophisticated as we learned more about cars 
um, got more databases out there, got, you know, different cars have different service timelines that they need. And we were able to utilize a lot of that stuff and that kind of the data analysis hmm. piece of it and put that out and really try to provide a value add, right, to the customers and the members of Ram. Right. So if I'm a customer and I have a Camaro and I love Camaros, I've had two or three wrench has some some sort of information or network that says hey we get your car we get you here's we can connect you to some people well that now that i think about it, that makes for some really great content marketing right because it's yeah. it, could, it could be endless because there's so many models years eras totally. of cars right totally and there is and, and that's one of the great that's what i mean by kind of our online secret sauce like we had email, we had great email campaigns, great online resources. And, and the great thing about cars, you know, is that as soon as a manufacturer makes a car, they come out with how to fix that car, right? Like that's, so there, all this data exists on cars and how they're built. And it's all very well documented. You know, that's why there's car books you know, like how to work on all these different cars, how to do this service on this car from this year, different than this year, even, you know, it's because when a manufacturer puts out a car, they have to put all that out there. Like they have to know how to work on this car and they do. So it's all well-documented. It's not easy to obtain in an online world as you think it is. And that was part of what Wrench was able to do a lot on the back end. But there is good documentation out there. So it's not you're not ever reinventing the wheel, if you will. Right. Still, that's it's impressive. Yeah. How did you all operationalize before scaling, before making this launch model? You mean operationalize like execute day to day, like what we were doing? Yeah. Like, like the stuff that you were in the thick of rolling your sleeves up for, right? Like yeah. and, and I imagine that's very different than while it is scaling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of those early days is is really about figuring out what you don't know yet, right? Like so one of the interesting things about building a startup is you have to make a whole bunch of assumptions, right? That's a part of the idea of the startup founder is they're predicting the future or inventing the future, right? And so as they go, they have to make a lot of assumptions. And so they are saying, this is how we think this is going to play out. And that's kind of your first operational plan. You got to start with the guess. You got to start with the big idea and try it and get out there. But really what the day-to-day ends up being is how wrong is your guess? <laughs> you know, how all these assumptions you made, how wrong are they? And what is the reality, right? And that reality may be changing day-to-day. Um, and so that's a lot of what the early days was. I have kind of a, a way that I work um, that I love that I've kind of just done over and over now. I call it my, I start with people. I turn whatever people do a hundred times into a really cool process where I've systematized it or or automated it or done something to make it a little bit more repeatable um, and efficient. And then if you've got a really good process that becomes like, you know, ridiculously repeatable and mintable, that becomes your tech products, right? That becomes your product. And that's in essence what we did at Wrench was let's just get the get the mechanics out there working on cars. Um, they are the professionals. They they took a lot of the lead. And then they would feed us back a lot of the times of what is it they need next? What do we what should we get better at? What could we expect if we did this? Um, and it was awesome. The mechanics had a ton of ideas. 
But the other side of it was we had to kind of come up with some really cool stuff. So, you know, a lot of the the technology we built, our apps, our our processes, um, they were kind of ever evolving. You know, I talk, I talked about this kind of logistics of getting parts, right? Like getting parts, you need parts for every single job um, that you do out there. And if you're out there spending a big chunk of your day just getting parts, then you're not working on cars, right? You're not fixing people's cars. And I think that became a pretty big revelation in the early days of like, we really needed to figure out some efficiencies there. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and so that, that became something, a process that we built for a while that was like, let's do it this way. And then it became part of the app that we had our mechanic app and, and how that all went. And then eventually it became even involved with partnerships with certain parts players and certain cities, et cetera. So you begin to realize like it's a it's a big animal, but it's all comes from that operas operationalization of doing it every single day and going, huh, how do you do that better? <laughs> let's not do let's not do that again. That's not very efficient. Let's do this. How do we make that, you know, improve that, that kind of idea? So operationalizing before scaling was the, the getting that feedback from mechanics about the parts before it scaled or while it was scaling? It was before and while, like it, it okay. was kind of a, it wasn't different. I would argue, I would say at scale, we had more mechanics telling us more things. We had diff- more parts suppliers. We had different kinds of cars. We had different types of customers, even, you know, one of the big things that we grew into was the fleet world, right? So one of the, one of the places where we found a ton of value add was for fleets, fleets, you know, need their vehicles out and working as well all the time. And what's an example of a company with a fleet, a plumbing, company, right? Like a guy with a plumbing company that has like five guys working for them. They've all got trucks that could be a fleet, right? You've got HVAC companies, you've got delivery companies, right? You've got anyone from vans to box trucks, you know, and everything in between. And, and a fleet, you know, is one of those, they're, they're a working company and they're part of their operations is that truck or that, that van or that vehicle on the move, right? That's typically part of how they make money. They can't have downtime, right? So how, and so anytime they need to go to a shop, they would have to take one guy would have to drive to the shop and the other guy would have to follow them to pick them up. Right. So they drop that vehicle off, pick that guy up. So having shops is a pain in the butt. Mobile mechanics is a perfect solution for these guys. Um, became a huge piece of our of our of our business. Um, still is, I believe, today. And but you begin to realize like their needs when it comes to the app and the and the technology that we can provide um, is even a little bit different, right? So you start to learn that at scale um, that you wouldn't have learned um, necessarily with just one one customer. Um, but it starts. I think the habit, that the practice, the 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 exercise of of that feedback loop, which I think you know, operations is at its best when it's providing that feedback loop, um, is uh, is is a big piece of that day to day. Whether you're doing it in one town with one customer or twenty towns with a thousand customers. Yeah. So I, I guess it's not as contrasting as someone could imagine of, of here's the playbook pre-scale okay now, now we're scaling throw that playbook out here's this scaling playbook okay now we're going to do these things it actually right. seems it's it's more gradual it's there's a lot more of iterative more iterative yeah. there's a lot of data yeah. being collected more and more data being collected exponentially or 
you know, minor exponentially. Right. Yeah. And again, as long as you have those feedback loops where you're paying attention, you know, again, I learned this again from the DoorDash guys and in many places, like as long as you're paying attention to those new inputs and this new bits of data, Today, I get to work with a lot of amazing data scientists, but arguably, you don't have to be a data scientist to do this. You just got to pay attention, measure, learn, um, and adjust. You know, so. Yep. And have some good basic statistical principles, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Right. So after almost eight years in marketplaces, what patterns or commonalities do you see from an operations perspective about marketplaces? Everybody's looking for that balance uh, between supply and demand. And it's all around this mythical concept of conversion. <laughs> it almost always comes down to uh, conversion. And, and conversion plays out in lots of different places in a marketplace, right? You're, you're trying to get new customers in, so you want them to convert um, from shoppers into customers. Um, you're trying to get new suppliers in, so you want them to you know, come in from prospects to recruits or, or or suppliers of some sort, right? And then once they're in the marketplace, you want that conversion between the supply and demand to be such that it is, you know, ideally balanced. And when conversion is a little bit out of whack on any of those inputs and outputs, then all of a sudden the whole machine, you know, becomes a bit out of whack, right? Your acquisition costs can go through the roof or your demand and, and and new customers can fall on the floor. Any number of things can happen. And so um, there's definitely um, this big mythical number that lots of people are chasing called conversion. And, and it, it varies per company and per marketplace. So it's not like, you know, you could it say. Does. I definitely think there's three or four places where it always is important. You know, like those ones that I identified, like new customer acquisition, you know, how to convert new customers uh, into into either full customers or or repeat customers. Um, the conversion on the other side of, of getting new suppliers, making sure that is, you know, in line. But yeah, those, those are the, and then the conversion in the middle, right? Making sure people are actually buying um, what you want, um, I think all matters. So. What are those four? If you could say for three, the audience, the three, I would say three, the three, you know, converting new customers, converting new suppliers. And then once they're in the marketplace, converting between each other, right? Like getting new customers, getting new suppliers, and then selling your, your, your goods or services. Right. Yep. It's almost like having the, the magic moment in a, in a date, right? It's like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to seal the deal. They'll have the kiss. All right. So, so just wrapping up here, Ty, we're going to do something called rapid mayhem questions. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. So tell me the first thing that comes to your head. All right. So what marketplace would Ty Jones be? I've always respected DoorDash in a ridiculous way. Like they, the way they ran their business, run their business and the diligence that they have, the big bets that they made, but with the, with the super smart execution and, and, and diligent look at it, I would, I would hope that I could be something like a DoorDash. And, and the other thing is they, they, they went after a very competitive field and were able to very diligently become the leader in their field. And I think that's very challenging. It's more challenging than creating a new space, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, let's join, let's jump into the fray and win. And so I would hope that I could, could be DoorDash as a marketplace one day. Best marketplace of all time. 
I can't stay away from Uber. I mean, I think Uber Uber defined the magic moment uh, in in marketplaces, right? Like I said, they kind of connected this this uh, ephemeral internet in your pocket to this physical really cool thing that happened right like it's not flying cars but it's the next best thing right like cars show up at the push of a button i mean that was ridiculous when it started happening like nobody believed that was a thing or could happen um or that it would catch on or that it would be really big like oh that's just going to be expensive that's going to be this that and the other and now it's ubiquitous right like that's that's crazy man they changed the world yeah it's pretty rad Okay, what's a marketplace you like that is not so popular? Ooh, that I like that is not so popular. Maybe it should be more popular. I mean, funny, you know, I track all these, I have tracked all these crazy, I don't know if I would say they that I like them or I think they should be, but you know, I mean, I've definitely seen marketplaces around like dry cleaning, right? Like, hey, you know, dry cleaning. You know, one of the things that I think actually should be a little bit more popular in a marketplace that isn't are these on-demand storage companies. You know, I think there's an opportunity with these places. You know, we're still a consumer-based society, right? And and I think if these things got more popular, one of these got more popular, they would, maybe we wouldn't need as much stuff on hand all the time, right? Like clearing out the clutter. In fact, I think one of them is called clutter. And this idea that, you know, I could have whatever I needed um, at the drop of a hat that is mine. I think that that if it were used all the time, it could be kind of become really, really useful. It's like one of those things, the more you use it, the more useful it would become. Yeah. You just gave me an idea of a on-demand storage marketplace, which is they come and pick it up and then you have the option if you don't want it anymore, that they go and they recycle it or they go and they sell yeah. and they get rid of it for you, right? Yeah, definitely. All right. Favorite marketplace that failed? Handy. Who was Handy? Handy was, you know, on-demand um, handyman, handy people that would come and like do tasks for you and and help you fix things and and do that kind of stuff. Uh, it, was, it was pretty cool. Um, they did not make it. Task Rabbit triumphed. Right. That kind was of, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were a little different, but yes, that model definitely did did a lot better. Okay. It's doing a lot better. And marketplace that doesn't exist yet, but it totally should. You know, back to kind of my stuff one, you know, I think all the stuff that you want in your kitchen is almost always too big for your kitchen. Meaning if it's set on a countertop, it would take up all this crazy space, whether it's a deep fryer, a bread maker, uh, these types of things. The other thing is, especially compared to the amount you use them, right? So unless you have a ginormous kitchen or a whole bunch of storage, right? Like these massive pantries, um, I think it would be, it's a little ridiculous to have all of this kitchen stuff. But if you love to cook and you do cook or you love to entertain and you get to do that every once in a while, like, how cool would it be to be able to have that stuff on demand, right? Like, I just need it for tonight. Because when you need a bread maker or you want to try a bread maker, you need a bread so maker. So you rent right? it for like, the night. You almost, like, rent it. Exactly. Like, and and but it doesn't live in your house. It lives with clutter or whatever, right? One of these storage companies. Yeah. And it, like, lives in a warehouse. And you go, hey, I need a deep fryer. Or, you know, I have friends who live in condos that don't have barbecues, right? And so they're like, but I want a barbecue every once in a while. Like, and they don't have space for a barbecue. So it's like if a barbecue could just show up 
so that they could like put it on the on their little you know balcony or whatever one time barbecue and then the person bring it back home like how how awesome would that be pretty rad uh, you yeah. get a traeger grill you're like i just want the exactly. traeger for the night right yeah, right? Like, I want a yeah. smoker, I want a smoker. Like, uh, yeah like a lot of people love you know smoked meat but they don't they're not going to do it all the time i love that stuff but i'm not going to do it all the time i don't even sitting on my deck all the time it'd be awesome to be able to go hey can i get that That's yeah, I, idea. I love that idea yeah i, I would use that so Ty, where can we find you? I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't have a lot of like websites and things like that. I'm out there. I've done, I do work with a number of, of small startups and, and entrepreneurs primarily. I love to work with them. But LinkedIn, I guess, is where I'm at. Ty Wolf Jones on LinkedIn. Instagram a bit, but I'm, I'm you know, more on LinkedIn. That's probably okay. my main place. Are you on Twitter? Not as much. I'm there, okay. but no, I don't use it a lot. I'm on Facebook. I don't use it a lot. LinkedIn is definitely my social network of choice these days. Instagram, I think you can say a lot in a picture. Um, so I definitely uh, uh, still still use that one often. But, um, LinkedIn's my author. Yeah. Okay. What are you on Instagram? Uh, T underscore dub underscore J. T dub J. So D U B T underscore D U B J. Yeah. Dub for for W. Basically. Okay. T W J are my initials. So. Okay. Hell yeah. Any ask to the audience before you go? Uh, support your local startup. <laughs> support an entrepreneur. I mean, I think there's nothing better these days. Support a small business, local business, local tech guy, local website guy, like gal, like figure it out, find someone and give them a try. Give them your business. Give them, trust them a bit to uh, try something new. Yeah, I second that. There's this kind of altruistic part of doing that. And if right. It, it does feel good, especially during COVID. I know we're getting out of COVID. Mm. Hopefully, we're for good. But never is there a greater time to do that than than now, right? Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. So, we will tie. Thanks so much for coming on the show. This is this is pretty fun. I don't know if you had a good time, but I sure did. I did. I did. It was a blast. I can't wait till uh, we do this with other people a lot more. So, oh yeah, hell yeah. All right, man. Sounds good. Thanks. What a phenomenal episode, huh, Ty? Yeah, that was great. And we really hope that you got as much out of it, listening to it, as we did making it. Thank you for listening. Yes, I second that. Thank you. And don't forget, you can like and subscribe if you wish. We'd rather hear of your thoughts. So tell us what you think of the episode and leave a review, please. Mayhem on, Ty. Yeah, mayhem on, Jacob. (laughs) 